Welcome to the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and I'm a former doctor turned lifestyle entrepreneur. Each week, I interview some of the best minds on the planet on the science of achievement and the art of fulfillment. Come take this journey with me. Excuses are over. It's time to live. There's 15 people in the room helping you, and there's no doubt you're the captain of that ship, but everyone there is integral and important, and so I need to set a tone for them. I can't tell you how many times I've seen, like in medical records, the suggested treatment for a problem like a child with a hole in the heart, literally written in the medical record is prayer, because that's literally all there is. There's really no other option, and and it's like that, that moves me. I mean, even as I say it now, it kind of just makes me remember all over again why I do this. I would use my vacation time to do these missions, which was fine. It didn't bother me, but it just wasn't enough. You know, that's not an, that wasn't enough for me. What's up, everybody? This is Rob Murgatroyd, and welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard show. Today's guest is Dr. Emily Farkas. Who is Emily? Emily is a cardiothoracic surgeon that does heart surgeries for six weeks in Los Angeles and then spends two weeks doing heart surgeries for babies around the world. In this conversation, we talk about everything from what holding a beating heart in your hand really feels like, what it's like to put a heart in a cooler, jump on a Learjet, then jump into a limo, then jump into surgery to do a heart transplant, and the strategies that she uses to calm herself down when she's doing heart surgeries on babies halfway around the world with vessels that are as small as two millimeters. I loved this interview. I loved talking to her. She blows me away. The truth is I really don't have words to describe her, so I'm just going to jump right into it. Please check her out on the socials at Emily Farkas. That's F-A-R-K-A-S. Without further ado, please enjoy this mind-blowing conversation I had with Dr. Emily Farkas. Emily, welcome to the show. Thanks, Rob. You're welcome. You know, I cannot tell you how long I have been waiting to do this with you. You have endlessly fascinated Kim and I for years now. And today, I finally get the chance to dig in and ask you what I've always wanted to ask you. So welcome to the show. Well, thanks so much. I'm looking forward to this chat as well. You're welcome. You know, I thought we would begin with a few self-interested questions on your education because you're the first person I've ever spoken to that went to Yale. And I just, I can't help myself. <laughs> I just, I just have to. So before we get into Yale though, let's start with Pepperdine. Can you tell us the story of how you chose to go to undergraduate school at Pepperdine in Malibu? <laughs> well, I'd like to say that it was the academic prowess, but the reality is I remember sitting in my guidance counselor's office and looking at the bindings of all of the colleges uh, in front of me, and I saw Malibu, California, and I was sold. <laughs> <laughs> no, was it just like that? It was pretty much like that. Then I had to, you know, spend the next several months com convincing my parents that I would actually study and actually make something of myself if I were to go to to school in, in California um, on the beach, essentially. <laughs> I mean, there were a lot of, there were other reasons. I, I was interested in sports medicine. They had a strong program there. 
Um, I did a lot of ballet growing up and I maybe in the back of my mind thought that I was going to somehow become a, a dancer instead of a, <laughs> instead of a heart surgeon, the usual decision tree. But if I'm totally honest, it was Malibu, California, and it's really been all downhill location wise since then. But, um, but I've got nothing to complain about. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, you know, it's no secret that we are, uh, we're stalking California right behind you. And so are a lot of, so are a lot of other people. So, all right. So let's dig in a little bit deeper into your background, because I think it's going to help put in context what we're going to talk about later. So dance and medicine, uh, were dual interests of yours at Pepperdine. Why did medicine ultimately win out? I think I knew that the ballerinas especially had a career that was over very quickly. I mean, you know, um, they're usually finding alternative careers in their, you know, 30s or, or thereafter. And so I guess longevity was one practical consideration. But the other, I think, was the connection with sports medicine was was really interesting to me because it it, it sort of served this constant questioning I have in my head about the way things work and the way to solve problems. And I felt like sports medicine and medicine in general gave me the opportunity to do that in a way that was also very interactive with, with people. And it was just kind of, it was a interesting concept uh, that I had never considered before. Let's move in to what we talked about in the beginning, which is uh, you did your training at Yale. And like I said, I think I have an unrealistic romantic view of what that experience was like. So, you know, <laughs> I've got, you know, I, I just, I have this, I have this view that, you know, um, everybody is named Skip or Muffy and they're, they're sailing in Kenny Bunkport with the Kennedys on Saturday, you know, with a, like a sweater f- folded up over their shoulders. You can't tell I've been thinking about this, can you? I mean, it has... <laughs> You painted some good imagery there. <laughs> yeah. Was it was it like that? I mean, what was it like being, you know, going to school at Yale? Yeah. So it wasn't exactly like that. I mean, I, I would say that, you know, I was, I was kind of working around the clock. So it, was, um, it, it wasn't that uh, glamorous, I would say. However, what is true, the hype is true uh, about the sort of academic just genius that you feel like you're surrounded by. And I don't mean myself, but I mean, you just, you walk into a coffee shop or the library or one of the, you know, the food halls. And it's like, there's just this sense, this like electricity of like really smart people coming up with really smart things and just really thought provoking, compelling, interesting people that is of course a generalization, but I always felt like there was this sort of surreal presence of wisdom around me somewhere. And it's really, it's kind of striking, I think, when you're, when you're on the campus and in the community. Do you come from a family that went to Ivy League, Harvard, Yale, etc.? Not at all. Uh, I come from a very humble middle-class family and I was, um, you know, the first person to get an advanced degree in my family. And, um, you know, so I'm a bit of a black sheep in that sense. I kind of strayed from the, (laughs) from the pack in some ways. And, um, but gained so much else, you know, from my upbringing, which was, you know, strong work ethic and practicality and, um, you know, kind of responsibility. So I think those two things uh, combined to, to give me a good foundation. You know, it's cool. You get to actually wear the Yale shirt. You know, you see everybody walking around LA with the, with the kale, with the kale <laughs> shirt. Looks like, what, do you, what do you think about when you see that? Are you like, are you like loser or like, what do you think? No, no. I, I mean, it's amusing every time I see it. I, I think it's a, a good sense of humor and I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> 
Let's talk about Africa. How did Africa enter your life? I think it was with Crossroads. I think that's where it started. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you did your homework, huh? I try. Yeah. So let's see. I was in medical school and um, I remember seeing this um, sort of poster board with, you know, people selling their bikes and different things. And there was this advertisement, so to speak, for a group called Operation Crossroads Africa. And basically they just assembled medical teams and, uh, you know, took them to places where there was need. And I um, took my first trip. It was between my first and second years of medical school to Kenya, um, Tanzania and Uganda. And it really, it just opened my eyes that you know, I think we all think medicine sort of transcends the socioeconomic status of a country. And, and I was just, you know, floored to sort of see what was around me and what could be done. So while you were there, I think you delivered your first baby. Is that right? right? That's right. right. What did that feel like? Well, it was, gosh, it was, it was like an otherworldly experience for me. But yet this is really this was really what medicine was. I mean, this was fundamental. So for me, it was kind of learning uh, what medicine was really about. It wasn't about like the CT scans and the MRIs and the excess that we have here in the U.S. It was about the real fundamentals of medicine. Uh, yeah. Why did you choose Sri Lanka? Uh, well, first of all, there was an opportunity there for a surgical type of um, rotation or internship, so to speak. And second was I was sort of interested in the Buddhist culture. I felt like, um, you know, I felt like that was a way that I could um, spend my free time there when I wasn't in the hospital was to kind of learn a little bit about Buddhism and and that culture, again, that was totally different and unique uh, and something I knew nothing about. What is it about Buddhism that attracted you? Sort of, it's like the lack of policing and scrutiny and criticism. And there, there's something about, I mean, togetherness sounds so corny, but there, there's just something about the fact that they don't need to have so many rules and restrictions and and all of these sort of uh, hoops that we jump through and all of these guidelines. It, there's sort of just a sense of being and calm and and connectedness to each other and to, of course, nature and all the other things that they respect so highly. And there was just something really peaceful to me about that, the way they lived and the way they conducted um, you know, their lifestyles. So I was really attracted to that. Are there any principles that you currently practice? Well, not actively, um, you know, not anything that would be you know, that anyone would confuse me for a Buddhist. <laughs> but mm-hmm. I think that fundamentally, you know, I, I think a lot of the concepts apply to the way I live my life. I'd like to think that, you know, sort of more of a trying to give back and trying to think about the collective good and those types of things, I think probably influence me heavily. Well, let's talk about that. You are doing some collective good with a group called Cardio Start. And if I understand correctly, you're working about six weeks in uh, California, uh, Los Angeles, doing heart surgeries. And then you leave to do heart surgeries in places like Nigeria, Uganda, Tanzania. A lot of us want to do mission work, but few of us actually do it you could easily have a cushy Southern California surgeon's life. Why do you do this? Yeah, uh, a great question. Um, you know, and I, to be fair, um, for the first five years of my career, 
I was on faculty in St. Louis as a, you know, assistant professor of surgery and, you know, the sort of what you're hardwired to think you should become as a surgeon. And we go from, you know, college to med school, med school to internship, internship to residency, residency to fellowship, like, and then to a job. And then you land there and you're, you know, assistant professor. And in five years, I was the interim chief of the division of cardiothoracic surgery for adults. And, and that was an enviable position at a, at a young age. But I sort of said to myself, okay, this is five years. It's a good time to kind of do some surveillance on where I am and where I'm headed. And I just thought like, you know, this traditional track, I mean, the next step would be to become the chief of a department. Is that what drives me? I mean, is that what uh, makes me feel like I've accomplished my goals? And and I, I just knew that it wasn't. I mean, everyone around me wanted that to be the answer, but but I knew that wasn't the answer. I knew that what meant the most to me was when I was in these places doing these missions you know, with people who would walk for five days because there's, you know, no access to healthcare. And uh, I can't tell you how many times I've seen like in medical records, the suggested treatment for a problem, like a child with a hole in the heart, literally written in the medical record is prayer because that's literally all there is. There's really no other option. And, and it's like that, that moves me. I mean, even as I say it now, it kind of just, it, it, it sort of, makes me remember all over again why I do this. And so I set out to really craft a career where I could get as much of that into it as possible. And it was a bit of a, I mean, it was a leap of faith. And um, and I don't know any other cardiac surgeon that does it quite like I do, but um, I just sort of set out to find a way that I could be a half-time heart surgeon here in the U.S. to devote the rest of the time to to doing the free heart surgery overseas. And I kind of made it up and it was a bit of a pilot project and it worked. And um, and I'm really so grateful for the the way I've been able to um, build my lifestyle around giving back like this because it, like I said, it's the reason. I mean, it's the reason I went into medicine. Um, I got chills when you said uh, prayer in the medical record. Wow. I can't even imagine what that must be like because I'm assuming that a hole in the heart is something that you could remedy. Oh, definitely. How long have you been going back and forth like this? Well, it's been actually um, five years. I started out when I, I've been doing heart surgery for 10 years. When I started out, as I mentioned, I was on the faculty um, at a medical school and I was trying to fit it in there. You know, I was going during my vacation time, which was only two or three weeks per year. So I would use my vacation time to do these missions, which was fine. It didn't bother me, but it just wasn't enough. You know, that's not, that wasn't enough for me. So I, I just, you know, I needed to think outside the box and come up with a way that I could, that I could make this a fundamental part of my life. Was it difficult to do it initially financially? I mean, I, you know, I know what it's like to get out of, to, to get out of graduate school, you know, being dead up to your eyeballs, um, make, make no money when you're starting, have no, you know, meaningful practice financially. What was that like? Well, you know, it was a calculated risk, in my opinion. I, you know, my my parents were <laughs> panicked, you know, <laughs> to leave the security and the um, the normalcy, of, you know, a, a, a permanent, stable, uh, predictable position was not something that um, that they were accustomed to, and not something that most people would be comfortable in. And so, it was definitely a risk, to be honest. The the money was a, con- I mean, the, you know, being able to, to survive, of course, was a concern, but 
to be fair, the thing that bothered me more than that risk was if I was going to let someone down, like the people who had trained me, you know, I'd been brought up in this amazing pedigree at Yale and my chief still to this day is, is so very supportive. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure you had heard that I was the first woman that ever trained in cardiac surgery at Yale. So I felt like I had this bit of a microscope on me and like people were watching, you know, what I was doing. And, and, and that was justified, you know, to, to those who are given much, much is expected. And so I was worried, you know, that I was leaving this pathway and that I was going to let these people down who had invested so much in me uh, in every way. You know, as you're, as you're describing this, I'm wondering how much of this, um, not to get too woo-woo on you, but I'm, I'm wondering how much of this, you know, was sort of divine intervention and your life just had this path and you just had to listen to it and follow it versus you just digging in and making this happen. You know, Rob, I, I wish I, I knew the answer to that question too. And I, you know, I think it's probably a combination. I mean, I think that um, uh, there's no doubt in my mind that I live a charmed life and I've been so fortunate and I've had so many opportunities and I've just had, I've been surrounded by people that have empowered and influenced and supported me. And so, and that's not every, you know, that's not every person's experience. That's not every woman's experience in medicine. That's not every um, you know, cardiothoracic surgeons, uh, experience. So I just, I feel like there really is some, some kind of divine intervention, as you say, matched with some commitment and some dedication and, and some drive. And, and I'm, you know, eternally thankful that those things matched up and, and got me to where I am today. Yeah, sure. I mean, when you, you know, when you listen to the, uh, to the whispers and take action on them, you know, amazing things happen. You know, not only were you the, the first female heart surgeon, like you just described, you were also given the tribal title of chief <laughs> in Nigeria. Like, and if I understand correctly, there was something like women ate first during that <laughs> celebration or can you, can you kind of unpack where I'm going with this? Yeah, sure. So, um, so Nigeria, so Nigeria, you know, country of 250, 300 million people with no access to heart surgery, no heart surgeon. Um, they had sort of dabbled in it 10 years prior to uh, when I came with a, a foundation called the Voom Foundation in 2013, but nothing had been done, like I said, in the country for over 10 years. So when we did the first operation there, I did the first heart surgery there and, um, you know, people just weren't quite sure what to do with me. I mean, you know, Nigerian culture is such that women are, they take a very submissive role. Um, it's, it's sort of like reverse chivalry as we would think of it, not in a malicious way, but just in a cultural way where, um, you know, men walk through the doors first, uh, men eat first, men, you know, are, are sort of given that those tiny subtle privileges. And, um, after the end of this mission, it was a two-week mission. We'd done many other surgeries, but at the end, they had a celebration with you know many political dignitaries and sort of a big celebration of this. And the MC said, you know, in honor of a of a woman doing the uh, the first operation, we're going to have the Dr. Farkas lead <laughs> the other women in eating first, which was like it doesn't sound like a big thing, but. It was a big thing. Yeah, it was, it was unheard of. <laughs> right. And so, you know, there was like complete silence. And, and, and I, you know, I've said before that I, I thought for sure I was going to be like on Dateline that night. My mom was going to see me um, because of the international incident it would cause. But I stood up and I 
walked to the buffet table and the women followed me and soon, you know, it became cheering and it was, it was kind of, it was kind of a moment. I, I'm no Rosa Parks, but it was, you know, my own personal moment in Nigeria. <laughs> yeah, for sure. What did it feel like the first time that you had a human heart in your hands? <laughs> well, it's a bit, um, otherworldly, isn't it? I mean, it's uh, <laughs> a bit pretty hard, is it? I have no idea. That's why I asked. I can't even imagine what that feels like. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's a thrill. It's um, a challenge. It's amazing. You know, just amazing, really, the human body. And, you know, when you think about all of the sort of implications that the heart has in, in popular culture, and and then you see this amazing, you know, machine, really, that's that's keeping us all going. It's just, uh, there's so many levels of appreciation that I have for it. So it was, I guess the one word to sum that up was overwhelming the first time. When you had a heart in your hand the first time, does it still have the same, and I'll use the word thrill, but you know what I mean. Does it still have that same kind of impact on you now so many years later? Or does familiarity with it sort of change things and you go in and just do the job? You know, I think familiarity um, eases the preparation, I would say, for it. So, um, you know, if I've done an operation 500 times, you know, preparation-wise, it's, it's of course, more known and, and less questions and maybe less um, of the novelty, so to speak. But I can say without exception that every time, you know, we open the chest and I am working on an individual's heart, it just, it hits me all over again. What, what an amazing thing this is and what an amazing privilege I have to be doing that. So, and everyone's, you know, so, so unique. I mean, you can do an operation 500 times and yet every patient will have something that's not quite what you expected or what's in the textbooks or you know what you had uh, anticipated finding. And so there's always something really unique about every operation. Um, and the thrill just, you know, it, it's a, I guess a privilege is what it's evolved into, but it has the same value to me. You know, so many of these questions and these answers are beyond words, aren't they? Absolutely. Yeah. So have you ever done a heart transplant? Oh yeah, several. Okay, I'll do the best I can to ask a, a technical question having no idea what I'm asking. What allows the heart to beat when it's taken out of a, a cooler, let's say, and stimulated electro electrically? So in other words, this is the vision I have in my head. There's a heart that's not beating, that's in a cooler. You take it out and you stimulate it electrically and it starts beating. I, I don't understand how that happens. Yeah. So, um, well, that's a fair question. So the answer is our hearts have internal pacemakers. So we have internal circuitry that, um, that as long as it's nourished and viable and receiving the, you know, the oxygen nutrients, so to speak, like the rest of our body that it needs, um, it will function. And so when we take these hearts out and transport them, of course, there's a finite amount of time that the tissue stays viable um, and not just the pacemaker, but every other part of the muscle and everything else. And so we, um, we keep them cold on ice to limit the, the damage that's done when they're outside of the body. And, uh, and like I said, there's a, a few hour time limit 
that you can preserve a heart outside of the body. And then once you are able to attach all of the, the plumbing, so to speak, that, that needs to, uh, to be configured and you actually shock the heart like you would um, in someone who has a, a funny heart rhythm, that pacemaker just jumps into action and, and is getting the blood it needs and is getting the oxygen it needs and is getting the electrical current to stimulate it to start doing what it does best. Does it blow you away when it just starts beating and you put it in? Oh, every time. And, you know, you may you may not know this. Uh, there's no reason why you would. But uh, every time we do heart surgery just for, you know, a valve replacement or triple bypass, et cetera, um, we stop and literally stop and then start the heart again after the operation. Because although there are some procedures and some techniques where you operate on a beating heart, you can imagine sort of blood in the field and, and also the movement of a beating heart when you're working on a, you know, two millimeter vessel, uh, sort of ups the ante a little bit. And so in every day cardiac surgery, we stop the heart, we put the heart on the heart lung machine. And then at the, when we're finished with our technical part, we start the heart back again beating. So every day we stop and start the heart and every day it's still a miracle to me. <laughs> Oh my God, I'm completely freaked out. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. So, no, no, that's okay. That's okay. It's a couple more questions and I'll get off the heart surgery. Do you, do you have any pre-surgery routines, rituals, or superstitions that get you in the flow of surgery? You know, I, I, I watch Grey's Anatomy. I know they listen to music. <laughs> so like, th does that really happen? Are you in there listening to Michael Jackson? And, and like, what, what, what's that, what's that like? The only real superstitious thing I have is that I have... I have a, a chain that has some medals on it and it has one of my grandmother's medals and, and actually my, my father's dog tags from, um, from his military time. And, and if I, I like to have that on when I'm flying and I wear it for every operation because for some, it's close to my heart literally. And, um, and I just feel like it gives me some kind of internal peace that I have that close to me. So I think that's really the only superstitious thing I do. I don't like walk around the operating table counterclockwise three times or anything. <laughs> right, right, right. Can you tell me about a time that you were the most scared in surgery and what skills do you use to keep yourself cool, stay clear headed while you're trying to save somebody's life? Yeah, so I'd say the the um, the most memorable time for me would have been um, it was a redo operation. So any time that you're entering the chest a second time after someone's had heart surgery before, the heart and uh, and all of the major you know like blood vessels like aorta they're sort of stuck up to the back of the breastbone or the sternum because of the scar tissue that's formed from the first operation. And you probably know that we uh, actually saw through the chest wall uh, to divide the breastbone. And when you're using that saw, sometimes it's literally uh, impossible to avoid the top surface of those structures. We do a lot of things to, um, to minimize that happening, et cetera. But there are some times when there's just no way to, to divide the breastbone without affecting what's stuck to it underneath. And so there was one time where that happened where a part of the heart was was almost it literally was glued to the back of the breastbone and so i knew that it would happen but it as it happened in a controlled fashion it it literally sort of split one of the chambers uh, I, I think you can imagine what that was was like and um you know I, i'm not sure 
how I've been trained to do this, I, I'm just grateful for it. For whatever reason, when something like that happens, what I'm thinking of, maybe subconsciously, is the tone that I set in the room is the most important thing. So if I panic or if I, you know, become anxious, upset, you know, crazed, loud, then everyone else is going to reflect that because there's 15 people in the room helping you and there's no doubt you're the captain of that ship, but everyone there is integral and important. And so I need to set a tone for them. And so I think I, you know, somehow I'm able to find that focus to delegate appropriately so that we can get through that period of acuity. And I don't know where I picked it up. I'm just, like I said, I'm just grateful (laughs) somehow that I've got that skill set. Does that uh, does that apply to other areas of your life too? In other words, you know, if you're if you're stressed out of over other things in life, or you know, I mean, just life, we all have things that are coming out. Do you have the ability to kind of go into that Zen place there as well, or is that specific to surgeries? Well, I think it um, I think it's more pronounced and more obvious to me anyway when I'm in surgery because it's literally a life or death situation um, in a more sort of personal kind of setting, I'd like to think that I do apply those principles, but maybe not consciously. Um, And I guess I don't see the results so quickly or so methodically, because like I said, it's not kind of a life or death situation. But I'm certain that those skills help me in everyday life. I, I, I have no doubt. You know, I saw something you'd find interesting. Um, I was watching one of those uh, TLC shows and they were training, they were showing how the training of the Secret Service happens. And um, they have them wired to EKGs and they shoot guns off around them and they train them to lower their blood pressure <laughs> every time they hear a gunshot. That is interesting. <laughs> wow. So what would you say is the typical personality that makes up a heart surgeon? I ask you this because you do things like climbing Kilimanjaro for fun. You know, is this <laughs> typical or are you an outlier in this regard? Well, uh, you know, I think I'm I'm probably very typical in some ways and, and very atypical in others. So I think that, you know, it obviously attracts a personality that um, is probably a lot of the things we've described, achievers, um, people like to solve problems, uh, people who can have laser focus and, and also... Um, kind of command a situation without being threatening. So I think there are probably a lot of features about that that go into someone selecting a specialty like heart surgery. Of course, there's many, many other valuable qualities that are required. But I think it, those features probably give heart surgeons the bad name that, that they have in the sense of being sort of um, arrogant, um, aggressive, you know, malignant uh, sort of personalities because they have this high-risk, high-pressure kind of situation. I'd like to think that I, that I have the skills necessary to do the, the job satisfactorily, but I, I, don't know, I don't know that it's just being a female, but I think that there's, there's something probably that I've learned along the way, which is the ability to just mutually respect everyone and to be very conscious of the way I'm affecting other people um, and the way that that they're perceiving me that kind of makes me a little, I, I think, maybe makes me a little bit different than the typical heart surgeon. I want to talk a little bit about how you were parented because our dream, you know, in this house over here, in the Murgatroyd household, we say, what would Emily do, you know? <laughs> so... You know, our daughter, Sophia, we want her to be as well-rounded and as generous as you are. So 
You know, looking back on how your parents raised you, were there any particular things that they did raising you that you'd recommend to people to perhaps test drive for themselves? Well, first of all, let me say thank you for that amazing compliment um, <laughs> about Sophia. Because You're welcome. Really, um, I mean, that's, gosh, one of the nicest things anyone's ever said to me. So thank you. Second, I would say that my parents, um, well, first of all, I owe them everything. Of course, they were just so, they were so accepting, I guess, of me. You know, I've, I've sort of always been this person that wasn't really in the mainstream or I wasn't really doing what the other kids were doing exactly. And, you know, who who quits their job of stability and, and now seemingly is unemployed and, you know, goes to the Congo and to Mongolia and all these crazy places. I mean, there's a lot that they've had to accept. And I think that, um, they supported me without being restrictive and without being without scrutinizing my decisions and and I felt like they really encouraged me to just be my own person that didn't have to fit into this you know this kind of box that everyone else does and um and, and so that's not a that's not a you know objective answer or it's not a hard kind of set of rules for any parents but I think it's a general concept that can be applied to so many things is to sort of, you know, they'd let me see sort of where I was going with some crazy idea and they would rein me in if they thought it, if they felt strongly that it wasn't something that would, would be suitable, but they really let me explore and, and see what was important to me and what mattered to me. And I think that's been critical. How many miles a year do you travel now? (laughs) Well, I just noticed that I'm, I'm edging up on my million miler status in Delta, but, um, gosh, I don't know how many per year. It's, it's a lot. (laughs) I can tell you the, the shortest interval when I, um, accumulated the most miles was I was in Nepal for a two week mission and it was, it was entirely my fault. I had messed up the call schedule and I didn't realize that I was on call the weekend in between the two weeks I was in Nepal. And I had, um, you know, tried everything. Like when I realized that a few days before I left, we were trying to get people to cover. Everyone at the hospital was trying to get people to cover. Um, the other two surgeons had had obligations with their kids that they out of state that they couldn't change, which I understood. But I literally flew home from Kathmandu um, on a Friday night after I'd operated in Nepal for the week. Flew home, um, was on call for the weekend, and then flew back on uh, Monday morning. <laughs> Nepal and finish the mission that second week. And, you know, it's like 27 hours or something each way. (laughs) You know, lucky. I mean, you, you, you overperform in everything, (laughs) even, even accumulating miles. I mean, what do you do on the airplane for that many hours? (laughs) Oh, I always have big dreams of what I'm going to do on airplanes. I mean, I, I, you know, think I'm going to accomplish, you know, writing a novel or finishing a grant application or a, I mean, I just have so many things that are lined up on my to-do list, but I think the truth is I just, you know, uh, I'm probably just mentally preparing for, for what I'm about to do or kind of decompressing from what I've just done. You know, coming back from places like this sometimes takes a little bit of adjustment um, to, to mold yourself back into our reality here in the U.S. A couple of questions that we're going to move into uh, to play hard and then rapid fire and we'll wrap up. So um, I have questions about some dark periods, maybe some struggles. Was there a particular, and this has nothing to do with surgery, was there a particular favorite failure in your life that set you up later for success? In other words, looking back at the time you were like, this sucked, but later on you were like, you know what? 
I got to tell you, I'm glad it happened. You know, I guess the most prominent thing to me, um, I'm sorry that we've already touched on this a little, but I, I think that that leap of, you know, leaving kind of the academic practice, I mean, it was, it, it just, it was such a scary time for me because I, I just, it, it was like nothing else that I'd ever seen. I mean, gosh, not like I'm like, you know, landing on the moon or something. I mean, it was just from a professional standpoint, it was really, uh, and, and a personal one, it was a bit of a, like I said, it was a calculated risk and, and I really questioned it. And I, in fact, I would go to meetings, you know, like our society meetings, national meetings, and other surgeons would say to me, you know, where are you working? And, you know, you, the, the, standard answer is, well, I'm on faculty at Stanford University or this, this, and this. Well, I didn't have that answer. I had this kind of like, well, I'm, you know, dividing my time between humanitarian work. And, and I was really, I was almost embarrassed a little because I was very aware of how different this was. And, and I, and it was, it was hard. It was really hard because it would happen again and again and again, like 25 times, you know, a day at these meetings. And, and I thought, am I doing the right thing? And ultimately, obviously this, lifestyle is just, it's exactly what I think I'm meant to be doing. So I'm thankful for that every day. Are there any particular struggles that you're currently facing or behaviors that you're trying to change? I'm sure there must be plenty. Sometimes I like get my electricity turned off because I forget to... Um... <laughs> <laughs> Yes, that would be uh, maybe helping would be would be one with my personal life. You know, I'm I'm just so everywhere that I sometimes let the little things <laughs> escape me. <laughs> that was the best and most unexpected answer. <laughs> so okay, so let's move on to the uh, to the play hard section of the show, which is really more about the art of fulfillment. So I kind of structure the show in two sections. One is the science of achievement, which we just did. And then the second half is the art of fulfillment because, you know, play hard means different things to different people. And it's not as, you know, most of the listeners are not going to be climbing Kilimanjaro and doing heart surgeries in Kathmandu. It's not going to (laughs) happen, but it is. So what is the thing that's rocking your world now that has nothing at all to do with the kind of work you do? Nothing at all to do with the kind of work I do. Yeah, I would say off-road racing. <laughs> uh, is, is, that, is that new or have you always done well, it? Well, I haven't always done it, but it's um, the last few years. I, well, I've always had an interest. I, I'm sorry that this is going to include medicine. Maybe this makes me boring that I can't get away from it, but expedition medicine has been something that you know is totally unrelated to cardiac surgery, but it's like, you know, I have certifications in polar medicine and wilderness medicine and altitude medicine. And, you know, as you mentioned, like I, I love to climb mountains and I, I, there's this side of me that's a side of medicine that has nothing to do with heart surgery. And we took that to, um, to the extent of being expedition medics for an off-road rally. So I've just come back from, um, you know, a eight country, two continent, um, off-road rally that I did as a fundraiser that you probably know about through uh, Europe and the Sahara Desert in West Africa. And, and along the way, learning these like off-road driving skills, you know, it's, it's almost like monster trucks or something you know, driving through the Sahara and these sand dunes and this crazy stuff. It just was a ton of fun. And again, it's like this skill set that I know nothing about. And I'm always so eager to to just learn about things that is re- that are really um, alien in my in my little my little world. By the way, I'm talking to nobody now in my studio, and I'm looking, going, who does this? 
I, I mean, like, I just wish that I was somebody was with me right now. It's like, did you just hear? I mean, like, do you have a uh, a vision board? No, but you know, I I, I think that I should. <laughs> I have one in my head, but it, I have to get to it. Well, it, it manifests in your life, so I guess I guess that's good. So, um, you know, you travel a lot. What trip has been on your bucket list that you finally finally took? Mm, I guess the last one of the seven summits that I climbed was uh, Mount Elbrus in uh, Russia. But the, the nice thing about this trip was it was knocking off one of the seven summits, um, the highest peak in Europe, followed by <laughs> sea kayaking in Greenland, which is like uh, kind of a wild dynamic. You know, we're, we're just, you know, at whatever, close to 20,000 feet. And then suddenly we're in the you know, in the ocean with icebergs around us. It was. <laughs> Did you levitate and cure cancer while you were there too? Or, <laughs> well, I don't want to no? show off. So I. <laughs> yeah. What? Oh my God. What is the top thing that you do to clear the chatter and drown out the noise of the world? Is there, cause you, you have a lot of stimulation coming at you. Is there any, anything that you do? Well, it seems like the right answer here would be like yoga or meditation, but the truth is it's boxing. <laughs> It's just what you'd expect a surgeon to say, right? Um, yeah, because you don't worry about your hands, apparently. Well, you can't live your life in fear, right? That's the way I feel. All right, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go in this area, relationship. Relationships can be challenging and maybe even go on the back burner when you're doing things like you're doing. What struggles have you had in this area and how do you overcome them? Oh, you've hit my Achilles heel. <laughs> I felt it. Yes, Um well, yeah, they can be a challenge. They can be dysfunctional. I think is is probably more um, more accurate. I I've been attracted to, and I do attract people that have a similar sort of unorthodox lifestyle that are you know very committed to something other than just the relationship. And I'm not saying that's the right thing. That's probably not the right thing. But um, that's sort of the the kind of person I think that can tolerate a lifestyle like I have and the kind that I can relate to. You know, I don't want to feel like someone's um, waiting at home for me, wishing they had some companionship for weeks at a time when I'm off in, um, you know, Vietnam or something. I, But that's hard to find, right? That's not normal. That's not the normal thing. And, and I don't feel like I'll probably ever be um, be married. I think uh, this is more information than you've asked for, but I think that, um, I don't know, I think there's an independent side of me that feels a little caged by that type of, of relationship. And so you can understand how uh, I said it's dysfunctional <laughs> when I do have them after that description. <laughs> As your therapist, I, I've got some. I've got some thoughts that I, that I, I think I can. <laughs> no, I I kind of thought that that might be the case, and I'm sure that like everything else, you're going to figure that part out. I mean, it's not. I, I I don't know how physically you can do it unless you know. I have this. I have this sort of vision of you with like a guy with like you know long hair and a linen shirt and a coral necklace, and he's just you know been in cat. <laughs> Katmandu, you know, shark surfing. I, I don't know. I, I got this image for you. <laughs> Do you I'll have, have a number because... Um... <laughs> <laughs> what is the one thing that you implemented in your lifestyle that's helped you look better, feel better, or healthier? Is there something like, you, you know, your go-to to kind of look better, feel better, or be healthier? I think, and I promise this isn't a plug, but I... I, I 
to be honest, I mean, to be fair, a turning point uh, for me was when I came across you and Kim and the way that, um, that you've kind of transformed your life. And the, and I think I've sort of followed a lot of the, um, the principles that, that you adopted and, and a lot of the, um, the practices and I mean, things like isogenics and things that, you know, like different ways to complement your health and to prioritize kind of what you're putting in your body and be mindful of it. I'm not sure that I had that before I um, I came across actually you and Kim. So it hasn't always looked the same. It hasn't always been the same recipe. It hasn't always been the same uh, routine. But I think it's a general concept just of being mindful and um, thoughtful about how you perform and, and what you how you exercise your body. Wow. Thank you for that. You know, what, what makes it so special with you is that you actually do it. You know, I remember I was talking to Kim about this. I, you know, uh, I told her that I was interviewing today and we were, we were talking about it and, and we were like, do you remember the time that she reached out to us? And, you know, because we had gone to Italy a bunch of times and you reached out to us, you know, where, where do you think I should go? I want to take a little sabbatical. And, you know, we gave you the recommendations and, you know, just forgot about it. Next thing I know, you're there, you moved there. <laughs> I was like, she's what? Kim's like, she's living in Italy now. I'm like, we just, she's like, no, no, no. She's there. Like she moves. I mean, like, again, who does that? That is the theme for this. If you had all the time and money in the world to pursue a hobby or some recreational activity, is there anything that you haven't done that you would love to do if you just had the time to do it? Yes, I would love to. Uh, well, I guess the biggest extension of it was I'd like to be an astronaut. But in reality, the thing that I'd love to do is to fly. And so I've started taking my pilot license training, actually. And um, and that is, that's a goal that's ahead of me that I, I really look forward to. All right. So we're going to move into the rapid fire question part of the show. You can uh, answer as quickly as you want or take as much time as you want. What's your favorite documentary? Well, again, I'm biased towards um, towards medicine, but um, because that's what moves me, right? So I think that the documentaries about you know, maybe the ones that I am involved with myself, how's that for self-serving? But the, you know, <laughs> because I feel it right. Every time I watch it, I, I feel what I felt when I was with these families and these kids and, and these patients. So I think that's, that's number one. Those are probably my favorite. The second would be like animal ones. <laughs> I'm kind of moved by, by sort of understanding the animal planet and the animal kingdom. Have you watched the blue ocean? The new one just came out. No, but I've heard amazing things. I mean, have you? Yeah, it's. I'm on the fourth episode. It's it's addicting. It's freaking incredible. Which documentaries were you involved with? So we can link it up if if it's available. Oh well, they're you know kind of like low translation, no budget documentaries. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I get it. I get it. Okay. But, um, yeah, but I certainly. I mean, there's ones about you know where I've been in Nigeria um, doing heart surgery and. Um, you know, there's, there's some with the earthquake in Nepal, you know, we were coming to start a program, a heart surgery program, but the, the earthquake that claimed 9,000 lives happened a week before we were scheduled to come. And so we just, you know, I brought the team and we, uh, we just did what we could in this unbelievable disaster. Um, so there's, there's some things surrounding that. So I, those are, um, you know, kind of the personal moving moments that I can think of documentary wise. If you can get any of those links, I'd love to link them up in the show notes. 
Sure. Okay, cool. What's the one thing that you own and probably should throw out, but you never will? Yeah, I think it's probably my CD collection. I can't understand. I know that I'll never use it. I don't have a CD player. I mean, does any do they even make CD players? No. I know I sound like a, you know, I don't no. know what I sound like, but no. it's over. It's over. Yeah. But you know, I have such an appreciation for music and I feel like that was and now I feel old like my grandma, but I feel like it was like a time when, you know, you like looked so forward to like, you know, finding the <laughs> the new um, you know, the new CD and the cover and reading inside the the um, about the tracks and the lyrics and it's just a different time in music I guess um, I really do sound old right now but so anyway I haven't thrown them away for that reason yeah no it's okay I showed my daughter a CD that we had in the house and she thought it was a frisbee she had never seen one before <laughs> what's the one app on your phone that you can't live without well it's got to be the Delta app just because I <laughs> so frequently in the air um, so absolutely that's got to get the most Mileage, no pun intended, really. Uh, <laughs> what is uh, your favorite book? You'll laugh. I think. I think. <laughs> I think it has to be the Jungle Book, actually, <laughs> from when I was a kid. <laughs> the the, uh, the yeah. animated one. Wow. What What is it about the Jungle Book? No, I just. I mean, yeah, there was like you know Baloo the bear and the Ka the snake and all these like amazing creatures and you know this kids living in the jungle off the land and swinging from tree to tree. And so he's flying, he's, he's in the jungle. He's, you know, with all these wild animals, he, he's, it's like survival, you know, it's just like, I think maybe that's where it all started for me. Was I was watching gonna, the jungle book was, yeah, I was going to say as your therapist, I've just making it, I've just taken a note. Who, who's someone that has changed your life significantly and why? I guess what comes to mind after my chief at Yale would be the would be a surgeon who started the charity Cardio Start. So his name is Aubin Marath, and he's British. Um, but 25 years ago, he uh, he started Cardio Start, the foundation, and just started doing what what I'm so grateful to be doing now by putting together these groups of of uh, doctors and different medical staff and going to these places where the need is the greatest and meeting him sort of um, allowed me to understand what it looked like to be a humanitarian surgeon uh, in a different regard but certainly introduced me to the concept formally and, and he's really stayed true to the um, the vision and the principles of this charity for you know the last 25 years and so he he really I'm sure he changed the trajectory of my career by being influenced by him as much as this pains me this is my last question for you <laughs> if you had to give a TED talk on nothing that you're known for nothing that you speak about and it could be on anything that you like to do or have a passion for or anything else for that matter what would it be you know I think it would be well, I guess it's related in some ways, but I think it would be about just like exploring in general, like just, you know, we're also, we're in this comfort zone, you know, and I, and I feel like people don't get outside of it enough and, um, and just that it's, you know, calculated risks are okay and, and exploring it, just what it's like to, to do something you've never done before, like, you know, climb a mountain or skydive or, um, uh, you know, drive through the Sahara, just kind of that mindset because it doesn't have to be defined like halftime heart surgeon it just it's like just a way of living your life to find the way that your personal and professional fulfillment matches up i think that's a skill that a lot of people 
don't um, excel at and it just shapes your world. So if I could somehow find a way to package that into a TED Talk, I'd love to, first of all, listen to it and then second, give it. (laughs) (laughs) It's awesome. Do you have any final words, suggestions, or an ask for the people that are listening? Well, um, you know, of course, I've spoken about Cardio Start and, um, and I, so it's so close to my heart. And I'm so grateful to you and Kim for the way that you're raising Sophia and the example that you're setting for people giving back. It's just the generosity and graciousness is really moving to me. So I, I think that would be my message. And, you know, if people are interested in, um, in looking into a charity where, you know, the real, <laughs> the real things are happening that I've spoken about, uh, cardio start to me is the one, but, um, the overlying principle is just to find ways in your world that you can give back. This podcast is uh, partly designed where every dollar that we make from the podcast, whether it's through advertising or any uh, any packages that we uh, ultimately wind up creating, um, we're taking uh, 10% and sending it to uh, CardioStart. Um, that's how uh, important it is to us. That's amazing. Thank you so much. That, I mean, of course. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for doing the work. Emily, I could talk to you all day. I know you got uh, lives to save. So I just wanted to thank you from the bottom of my heart uh, for taking as much time as you did. I know that your schedule is crazy tight. So thank you. Well, thanks so much, Rob. I'm going to go pay my electric bill and and we'll be good. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live.